We are continuing in our series, The Gospel of Jacob, and we have been looking at the book of Genesis now for quite some time. Um, I believe this is actually, actually the 20th week. So we've, we've been in Genesis for quite a while. Uh, but Genesis is a very big book, isn't it? I mean, if we were to actually go week by week through the entire book, we probably would be here till Jesus returns, um, which is the end of the story. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about stories today. Um, but we have been just kind of picking the highlights. I love to read. And I am reading a, a fictional book right now. And I'm in chapter, I think I got to chapter 82 last night in the book. Um, I've been reading it for like seven years. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but, it, you know, if you consider our lives to each be a story or a story book, uh, we're all in different chapters. Grace Life has a story book, if you will. And uh, we're not in chapter 82 yet of Grace Life. We're, we're somewhere, you know, we haven't even gotten to the middle yet, I would say. There's a lot ahead of us, and that's something to be excited about. If you consider our lives as stories, some of us are earlier in the book, and some of us are more towards the uh, conclusion of the story. Um, but you know, in each of our stories, there's this really cool part, and it's the epilogue. And I think the epilogue for every believer is just forever. Because when we pass from this earth, we go to be in the presence of the Lord, and it's forever. And so even if our stories end, they don't truly ever end. God is the author. God is a storytelling God. Since the earliest of days, perhaps around a fire, perhaps around the dinner table, tales of God's work in creation, the flood, how this family that we've been looking at, Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob, became a nation, all these tales have been shared through story. Storytelling is one of the best ways to take truth and make it memorable. Man is made in God's image, and therefore man is creative as well. We're imaginative, we're artistic. And this is because God is the greatest of storytellers, and he's put that in us. We want our stories to have a favorable resolution. You don't want to get to the end of the story and it just leaves you on a cliffhanger and then they never return for a sequel. You want it to have a good ending. You want it to have a happy ending. J.R.R. Tolkien called this the eucatastrophe. For Tolkien, the eucatastrophe in a fairy story was a glimpse of the gospel in the real world. He would compare them. The story of Jesus is the greatest story and as he wrote The Birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. Sam Schuldheis, writing of the storytelling God, writes, God's word comes to us in scripture, both as many stories and one story. God's word is the story told of many people, places, and events in many genres and by many authors. And yet scripture, with all its genres, metaphors, and similes, has one author, one unifying story and one singular theme, that of the great storyteller who wrote himself into the greatest story of all history. God became man. The author became incarnate. Jesus took on human flesh for you. God is the storyteller who entered into the story when Jesus became flesh. 
And so today, let us consider again Jacob's story by comparing his story to another story, that of the prodigal son. And today's message is entitled, The Prodigal Brother. Today we'll unpack this by looking at wrestling with God and limping with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning uh, for bringing us together so that we could worship together, so that we could encourage one another. And uh, Lord, I just ask that as we hear about the story, the greatest story, that our hearts would be lifted and encouraged, and we would go from here knowing that you, as author of our story, uh, we can have confidence that you are writing the pages of our lives, and we can walk out knowing that um, we are in your hands, just as Jacob was in your hands. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wrestling with God. Before we get to our passage today in chapter 32, which for us will begin in verse 22, I do want to catch us up to speed a little bit. In chapter 28, Jacob fled Esau's wrath, fearing that Esau would kill him as soon as their father Isaac died. And at a place named Bethel, Jacob would name it Bethel, he had an encounter with God. Through a dream, the Lord showed Jacob his presence and power, but also his nearness. God himself came down a stairway from heaven and stood over him. At Bethel, God promised to be with Jacob, to keep him, and to eventually bring him back to his homeland. In chapter 29, Jacob worked for seven years to marry Rachel, the youngest daughter of Laban. But Laban deceived Jacob, and he ended up marrying Leah. He would also marry Rachel, but he had to work for another seven years for Laban. Jacob had been Jacobed. The schemer had been out-schemed. Now, in chapters 30 and 31, we're not really covering, but I do want to just mention quickly, Jacob continued his scheming ways. No surprise. Uh, because of his skill, Jacob was tasked with shepherding Laban's flocks, and Jacob convinced Laban uh, to give him the sheep that were blemished, the ones that were striped, the ones that were spotted, and through his plotting and some interesting breeding practices, he managed to grow his own flock to be quite strong and healthy and far more numerous than Laban's flocks, which were more feeble. In chapter 31, Jacob and his family leave Laban to return to Canaan after God uh, comes to Jacob again and tells him to head back home. Jacob schemes again, and they flee while Laban is away. Laban gets word and he pursues. And there's a good bit of drama. Go read that for yourself. They make an agreement. Jacob and his family head to Canaan after being away from home for 20 years. Jacob is heading back. But first, Jacob realizes he needs to make things right with Esau. Now, the reason I titled this message The Prodigal Brother is that this story of Jacob in some ways seems to mirror the parable of the prodigal son. In the story of the prodigal son, which is found in Luke 15, we see the moment the son made his decision to return home. In Luke 15, verse 17, it starts by saying, but when he came to himself. So after his life falls apart, and he finds himself eating pig slop, he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. This wasn't just mental clarity. This was this son realizing 
the mess that he had made and where he could go to get out of this mess. He's come to the end of himself. And so verse 20 says that he arose. That is, he went home. Genesis 32 begins with Jacob went on his way. He arose. He is heading home. Now, Jacob hadn't fully had the moment of coming to the end of himself yet. But through the years, I believe that he has come to see that he was at fault for the relational dysfunction that his family has. He tells the servants, his servants, to go on ahead and bring this message to Esau when he's realized that he's got to reconcile with his brother, the brother that he's wronged, the brother that has stayed behind with the family. He sends this message to him in verse 4. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Again, this message that he sends off to Esau mirrors the speech the prodigal son in Luke devised to tell his father. In Luke 15, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Both prodigals planned to submit themselves to the one that they had wronged by becoming servants. Both prodigals had caused financial hardship and they were offering to make it right. Jacob was sending flocks, servants, not as a bribe, not to show off like, hey, while I've been away, look how much I've accumulated, but to say, I've wronged you, I've caused you this loss, and I'm willing to make this right no matter what the cost to me is. I want to pay you what is rightfully yours. The prodigal son, by offering to become a servant, offers his labor to work off what he had taken from his father. In both stories, the father in Luke 15 and Esau in Genesis move to meet their prodigal. The servants come back to Jacob and they tell him that Esau is on his way with 400 men. And when Jacob hears this, he's afraid. And for good reason. 400 men. Elsewhere in scripture, 400 is connected to the number in a militia. For example, in 1 Samuel, David's mighty men numbered 400. And though that was years later, it seems throughout Scripture that this is the number uh, equated with a militia. So Jacob is thinking Esau is out for revenge. Oh boy. Ever scheming, ever conniving, Jacob hatches a threefold plan. First, he splits his camp into two camps. And essentially the idea is if... Esau comes and and destroys one camp. At least he's only taken half my possessions. Second, he decides to pray. And we'll cover that in a moment. Third, he decides to take the camp that he is in and he divides his goats, his sheep, his camels, his cattle and donkeys and his servants. Each group will be led by servants. And when they approach Esau there to tell him that they are a gift for Esau, from his servant Jacob. Each one is to say, your servant Jacob is behind us. I don't know, maybe he's thinking by the time he gets to like the donkeys, Esau's just gonna be like, all right, enough already. Just Jacob, come on, you're all right. I don't know. But this is another elaborate plan. Jacob is scheming to earn his brother's favor. 
And yet, I do think that Jacob is sincere here. Because if, if we're honest, none of this stuff, our motives, our, our reasons for doing things, are ever just black and white. This is always just kind of messy stuff. Even as Christians, we battle the flesh, and the stuff of flesh is messy. Sometimes, with okay motives, we do things in not okay ways. Jacob could have just gone out himself to meet Esau. Wouldn't that have been the right thing to do? He could have left his family and his possessions, his servants, all his flocks, and said, if you don't hear from me in a couple days, return to Laban. But no, he actually sends them ahead of himself, as we'll see, so he can be alone for the night. And, you know, I think this is okay motives. He wants to pray. I can understand wanting to be alone for the night when something like this is happening. But he puts his family, his servants, and everything in between himself and Esau, who he thinks is coming with revenge. Always scheming. Always conniving. And Jacob also can't fathom, I think, I think we see this, that perhaps Esau has calmed down. He can't fathom that. He's projecting the way that he thinks onto his brother. This is what I would do, so this must be what they're doing. I think this seems to be the thought of the prodigal brother here, Jacob. And I think it's also the thought of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel. He thought his father, uh, you know, there was no way his father would accept him back as a son. But maybe he would accept him back as a servant. And I'm thinking the reason he chose that is because that's probably what he would do. There's no way he would accept someone back in that way, but maybe if they would work for me. And so he's projecting his thoughts onto the father. Jacob is projecting his thoughts onto Esau. So let's read this prayer that Jacob makes in Genesis 32, uh, verses 9 through 12. And we're going to read it in the CSB. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. Now, I love a couple things about this prayer. First, this is a really Jacobian, if that's a word, prayer if there ever was one. This is just Jacob doing Jacob things. In his prayer, Jacob restates the promise that God gave to him when God told him to go back home, the chapter earlier, chapter 31. And it's similar to the first promise that God gave to him in chapter 28. But in both those instances, God said, I would be with you. And Jacob changes the wording to as what we see in the CSB, I will cause you to prosper. This word in the Hebrew is causative. Jacob is saying, God, you promised me that you would only cause good to happen to me. Actually, God promised to be with him, which is good. Don't get me wrong. It absolutely is good. But Jacob is adding something here. He's claiming something additional that God didn't say. And the second thing in this prayer, I, I find to be funny. Jacob, in this prayer, he says, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, referring to his journey away from home, uh, 20 years before, all he had was his staff. And now I have become two camps. 
I mean, just a few verses before this, Jacob decided to split his camp into two camps. He's boasting in this plan that he's hatched. He's boasting about all these blessings, but really he's just boasting in his plan to preserve his own life. He's saying, God, you've blessed me, and now look at me. Two camps, where before I only had a staff. When Olive was itty-bitty, she still is itty-bitty. I'm a little bit sentimental. She was kind of purging some of her toys last night, and I got a little bit misty-eyed as I realized some of those child days are gone. Uh, But I'm going to be okay. Just check on me in about a week. But when she was small, we would go to McDonald's and she would order nuggets and, and she would, as she would say, multiply them. She would take those nuggets and she would rip them into pieces. She would tear them apart and it would look to her eyes like she had more. She was dividing them. What Jacob is boasting as God's favor toward him, saying, I once had nothing but a staff, but now look, I've become two camps, is essentially like tearing your chicken nuggets And saying, God, because of your favor on me, I started with 10, but now I have 75. (laughs) Now, certainly God had blessed him. I mean, that is absolutely in the scriptures. But it seems that Jacob is kind of twisting his words, twisting God's words in order to kind of manipulate God in prayer. He's trying to save his skin by twisting these words a bit. And here's the crazy thing. It's both frustrating and yet should cause us all a little bit of joy because it works. God will answer Jacob in the way that he wants, not right this second, but he will, as we'll see. And here's the point. You and I, we stumble around in prayer. Sometimes good motives, sometimes fleshly motives, selfish motives, most of the time mixed motives. Because we're still in this flesh. And so it's often that our motives are somewhat unknown, even to us. And God shows unbelievable and scandalous grace. Jacob is a scoundrel, but he will get what he asked for. We are all that scoundrel. We are all a little bit of Jacob. God is always gifting to us what we did not deserve. As author Chad Bird, Chad Bird puts it, this prayer of Jacob is like a mud pie served before God, and God accepts it like a delectable dessert. Our prayers often smell of flesh, and, and this is part of the shock of grace and mercy. How can God answer our prayers? How does this fleshly, smelly thing become like incense as Revelation 5 portrays it? Chad Bird goes on to write, God does so because all our prayers pass from our mouth into Christ's ear and out of Christ's mouth to the, Father, to the ear of our Father. Our prayers pass through the purifying mediation of our great high priest. Our voice in prayer is always the voice of Jesus. Now, while he doesn't always give us what he wants because God is a wise father, he does give us what we don't deserve, and he does so because of Jesus and because of his fatherly love for us. And all of this sets the stage. That's my introduction for our passage today. There was a lot of groundwork to cover, but I think we need to know all of this going in to cover what's happening with Jacob, what's happening in this moment, in the nighttime encounter that he has with God. 
Let's read Genesis 32, 22 through 24. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So Jacob, during the night, he takes his wives, he takes his two female servants, uh, which also had borne him children and his 11 children, and they cross the river. And then for some reason, Jacob goes back across the river. And he's there all by himself. He wants to be alone. But Jacob wasn't alone. The passage simply, simply says that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So some mysterious man grabs Jacob and they wrestle. They wrestle all night. Stone Cold Steve Austin never wrestled all night. Maybe I should have saved the music for today. I don't know. But they wrestle all night, and neither one is able to gain the upper hand over the other. Now, just even from the surface, we can draw a couple things about this encounter, much more when we learn who it is that Jacob is wrestling. But first, Jacob, again, is alone at night. We're familiar with the phrase, dark night of the soul. This phrase is used to describe a painful season in one's life. Jacob's life has been a dark night of the soul. Ever since he ran for his life. Now, there's certainly been joyful moments, but even those have been few and far between, and oftentimes twinged with a bit of sorrow. You read through the birth of his children, and you see it from the perspective of Leah and Rachel, and there's just sadness mixed in there. So even the good things have been full of a bit of sorrow. Lots of sleepless nights. The moments he has with God that we see often occur at night. When he is alone, alone with his thoughts, in the silence, and the darkness seems to be creeping in. Second, this encounter, this wrestling with a stranger, becomes an all-night, all-out brawl. Jacob has been wrestling for a long time, though. This isn't the first. As we've looked at his life, I hope it's become clear, Jacob has been wrestling all along. His lifetime of a dark night of the soul is really a wrestling of the soul. Constantly looking, constantly grappling for the favor and blessing of others. Wrestling in the womb with Esau. Reaching for his brother's heel. Grasping for what was always just out of reach, scrapping for his father's attention, wrestling with Laban for 20 years, wrestling with Laban. You could describe Jacob's life as striving, just always striving. And so what takes place on this night was simply the culmination of a lifetime of soul wrestling. And here, as he has been for his whole life, he is wrestling with God. His whole life he has been trying, striving, scheming, depending on his own self, and in that he has been wrestling with God. And don't we do the same? We rely on our own wisdom. We strive. We look to our planning and our wisdom and our strength. We're all a little bit of Jacob. This word for wrestling is only used a couple of times in the Old Testament. And it's similar to our English idiom, a dust-up. This word is also connected to the word Jacob's name comes from. So this dust-up, this wrestling match, begins 
when this mysterious man sneaks up and Jacob's Jacob into the dirt, dust flying. I think this communicates something about what God was willing to do, not just for Jacob, but for all mankind. You see, this man is not just a man. This is another Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the flesh. Hosea would go on to speak of this encounter as Jacob wrestling with the angel, as our English Bibles translate it. But angel means messenger. And so this is not just a messenger. This is the messenger. The messenger is seen throughout the Old Testament, coming to God's people. And and scholars have always understood this to be the Son of God coming in a pre-incarnate human form. God has taken on a temporary human form. And it's not just an illusion, because the dust flying into the air shows us the earthiness of this all. There is sweat, there is flesh, and there is dirt flying All night, Jacob wrestles with God, and he will leave here limping with God. Reading verses 25 through 32, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. There's a lot going on here. A lot of amazing things. Jacob and this man are really going at each other. They are, they are, I mean, this is an all-out brawl. They wrestle all night, and near daybreak, the man touches Jacob's hip, and it was put out of joint. Now, I tried to think of a way to like demonstrate this, but um, seeing as my shoulder is already out of joint, um, it didn't seem like a wise decision. But if anyone wants to just, you know, dislocate their hip, I, you know, just to show us, you know. No, I'm kidding. He dislocates Jacob's hip with a touch, and yet it says that he did not prevail over Jacob. I think it's at this point that Jacob begins to realize who this mysterious man is. This man touches his hip, and and no, the word does not mean that he wrenched his hip out of socket. It doesn't mean that he just like drop-kicked Jacob or something. It means he touched him with the most gentle of touches, and his hip was dislocated. And I think Jacob is realizing that this man could have touched him and incinerated him. He could have just stopped him from existing. It's dawning on Jacob who this is. And in this moment of weakness and pain, and really all of Jacob's life of striving and wrestling in this moment is coming to a head, Jacob realizes he cannot let go of this man. This man, the pre-incarnate Jesus, says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not unless you bless me. 
Jacob is still grabbing. He's still reaching. He's still striving. He wants this blessing. His whole life has been a quest for blessing. And here again, he strives for it. Here's a man who is now left somewhat lame. He will limp for the rest of his life. He's in pain. You'd think he'd be the loser, right? I mean, his hip's out of socket. How do you win win from that, you know? But God says, you win. And it's not because of Jacob's effort. It's not because of his ability to hold on. It's because of more of God's scandalous grace. Jacob receives the blessing that he's craved. God says, okay. And he changes his name. He calls him Israel, for he had striven with God and men, and he's prevailed. He's won. Jacob, now Israel, names this place Peniel because he had seen God face to face and had not been killed. You know, the scripture is full of names that tell us stories. Stories about God, about his people, about redemption. Abraham means father of many. Isaac, laughter. Jacob, heal. Bethel, house of God. Israel, the God striver, the God fighter. Peniel, the face of God. And what's interesting about Jacob becoming Israel is that though his name is changed, God will at times still call him Jacob. He seems to go by both Jacob and Israel for the rest of his life. In other instances, when God changed a name, he never called them by their old name. But Jacob's story is the story of these two names and where they merge. Jacob was a heel, and to some degree the heel remained, if you go on to read the rest of his life. But he also contended with God and prevailed. So both of these names tell this man's story. And as the, pa- the passage ends, we're told that the descendants of Jacob kept alive the memory where God touched man. Perhaps it was around the dinner table as the father was you know, cutting up the meat and serving the family. He would set aside that portion of the thigh with the sinew. Maybe it was a little goat or lamb or something. And he would tell his family of when God and man fought. And God touched this man's hip and man won. And the winner limped away with a wound that tells an unforgettable tale. The limp of Jacob for the remainder of his life told the tale to those who would see him. Who is that man limping over there? That's Israel, the God fighter. He won against God. It's etched forever in his body. Many of us have limps, and like Jacob, we now limp with God. He's touched us in some way to change our lives, to work in us, and it's left a mark. Maybe it's an internal mark that no one else sees. He's brought us through some things, and now we limp because of it. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of our need for God's grace. It's a reminder uh, of his mercy towards us. It's a thorn in the flesh to remind us that God's grace is sufficient. And now we are limping with God. We don't limp from him to him or apart from him. We limp 
with him. Now, next week, we'll conclude our look in Genesis and our time with Jacob's story. Uh, But I can't leave this part of Jacob's story without showing you the eucatastrophe, without showing you the, the happy ending, how this moment in the prodigal brother's story concludes. Genesis 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Here we see God answered Jacob's prayer. That prayer mixed with all of Jacob's Jacobing. Here we see grace. The brother ran to him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him. They wept together. Luke fifteen twenty, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The gospel of Jacob, when we consider this story of the prodigal brother and when we consider the story of the prodigal son, it's almost insulting to our senses just how scandalous God's grace is and how scandalous this mercy truly is. In both stories, you have undeserving wretches getting what they did not deserve. I mean, they both should have just been left in the pig pen or the sheep pen or somewhere just out in the wilderness. But Esau comes running. The father comes running. Why? Because that is the ultimate picture of grace. God came running. And maybe that does insult our senses, but that's what makes the news so, so good. It doesn't make sense to our natural senses. The story that we're seeing of Jacob wrestling is a foreshadowing of so much of what we see in the gospel. And really, this has all been a little bit of an incarnation uh, slash Good Friday slash uh, Easter message, all rolled into one. So I've covered all the holidays for this year already. Because on this particular night, the Son of God slipped into human form. He didn't even just appear human, he felt human. Though it wasn't the full becoming flesh that would happen much later. But there was muscle, there was brawn, there was sweat, and there was dirt. He was God. And it's not that he could not have prevailed over Jacob, it's that he didn't. He was painting a story for us if we have the eyes to see it. May the Spirit give us eyes to see. We've likely heard interpretations of all of this, saying if you just hold on to God, like Jacob did, don't let go, and God will reward that. But that's not the point of this story. Jacob didn't win because of his strength. In fact, his strength was gone. He won because of God's grace. Because God lowered himself, becoming weak for Jacob's sake. And all throughout the story of the Bible, God has shown over and over again how he would come to earth in human flesh, in weakness, and all so that he could be defeated in our place. God became weak so Jacob could prevail. God made himself low where Jacob could fight God and win. And this is what happens in the incarnation. Jesus becomes flesh. He's born as a baby. 
He hungers, he thirsts, he's tempted, he feels, he weeps, he sweats, he bleeds, he dies, he's buried, and he rises again. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, the Son of God, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here with Jacob on the banks of the Jabbok River, the Son of God in the darkness, with sweat staining the ground, allows Jacob to lay hold of him and not let him go until he is changed and blessed. And as we gaze through the lens of Jacob's life to another night, Under the cover of darkness, the Son of God on a hill called Golgotha, with blood and sweat staining the ground, allows the descendants of Jacob to lay hold of him. And he does not let go until we are changed and blessed. And it's through this seeming loss that divine victory is won. And now all who believe can be changed and blessed just like uh, Jacob was. Jacob wouldn't let go of the Son of God until he was blessed, and on the cross, Jesus wouldn't let go so that we could be blessed. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Our names have been changed as well. Paul says we are all the Israel of God. We were sinners, now saints. Wretches, now forgiven. Lost and now found. Dead and now alive. Jacob bore the marks of this wrestling in his body for the rest of his days. We're told that Jesus, in his resurrected body, still bore the marks of the crucifixion in his body. These scars are the trophies of victory. God is a God of grace and mercy and is the God who gives us victory by being defeated by the very people that he came to save. And now the only striving, the only wrestling that remains is to rest. Hebrews 4.11 speaks of that rest, a striving to rest. Striving to rest is choosing to rest in the truth of who we are in Christ and living in the freedom and peace that comes from knowing that we are fully loved and accepted by God. And so, brothers and sisters, you can rest. This is God's story. This is Jacob's story. This is Israel's story. And this is our story as well.